Our text this morning picks up right at the end of the gospel reading in uh, Matthew chapter 21. So here again, God's holy word. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as we hear it today, we pray that you give us your spirit, that we might rightly understand it, that we would appreciate both your word and the world that you have created. Father, deliver us from everything that's not helpful, everything that is wrong or in error, and guide us by your spirit into truth. Give me articulate speech. Give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1861, when Union General George McClellan was appointed by Abraham Lincoln to be the senior army, I'm sorry, the senior commander of the Army of the Potomac, when he was appointed, uh, everyone uh, had high hopes. Everyone in Washington had great expectations of his success. McClellan was considered to be a hero. He'd won several small engagements in West Virginia, while the Union Army overall had suffered a number of humiliating, discouraging defeats by the Southern forces, he saw himself in his letters to his wife as the man who would save the Union. That's, that's how he viewed himself. And, and he, for a while, looked like everything was going to be uh, better for, for the Union Army. He increased troop presence around Washington, D.C., and made everyone feel safer for a time, but he was extremely hesitant to take that army out of the city and engage the Southern forces. He constantly complained that he didn't have enough experienced men, that they were not well enough equipped, that the new men had not been properly trained, the weather wasn't right, and, and that his opponents always outnumbered his own army. And of course, this was completely untrue. At one point, he wrote about uh, Beauregard, PGT Beauregard, the Southern general. He said, Beauregard has 150,000 men. I cannot count more than 55,000 in, in my company. The enemy has three to four times my force. That's what his expectation was. And the reality was that the two combined Southern armies of Joseph Johnson and Beauregard didn't have, they didn't have 60,000 men between them. Later on in, in 1862, when Robert E. Lee marched his army into Maryland, Lee had 40,000 starving, poorly equipped, poorly clothed men. McClellan had easily twice as many soldiers, but he was hesitant to engage because he thought and told everybody that Lee had 97,000 men that he was bringing up into Maryland. And that led McClellan to engage in the series of uncoordinated, poorly organized attacks. He was always stopping and he was waiting for more reinforcements and waiting for better supplies before he could go on and do anything. So even though he was always better equipped, he was always 
uh, better armed, better supplied, with a vastly superior army in terms of numbers and condition, he could only fight the bedraggled southern army to a draw on the bloodiest day of the war at Antietam. And Lincoln became so frustrated with him that he replaced him soon after that. McClellan's fatal flaw was that he habitually overestimated the strength of his enemy and he drastically underestimated the size and the potency of his own army. McClellan's nickname was Little Napoleon. Little because he was short. Napoleon had nothing to do with his military prowess. It had everything to do with the size of his ego. So McClellan was known as Little Napoleon. And we in the church, Christians are apt to be Little McClellans when it comes to effectively evaluating who we are, what resources we have been given to engage our enemies, and when it comes to estimating the power of our opponents. Like George McClellan, we fearfully overestimate the power of our enemy and we vastly underestimate our own potency. We assume that our weapons that God has given us to fight our battles, we assume that our weapons are weak and ineffective and that we are always outmanned, outgunned, and that the enemy is impossible to overcome. We make these assumptions partly because we secretly covet all the things that our enemy values, political power, control by any means necessary, worldly wealth, and, and we grow in our lust for those things. We grow to despise what God has given us as our strengths, word and sacrament, worship, man and woman, building a life together, children. We don't think these things matter as much. If we just had money and political power, then we could really change the world. But these things that God has given us, I mean, he's given us pea shooters and BB guns, and we want the heavy artillery, or so we think. We're outgunned, we assume. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the day that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, the first day of that week where he is betrayed and tried and crucified and bury. That same week, Jesus processes into the city of Jerusalem, and he's coming into the city like a heroic conquering king, enthroned on the praises of his people. But he doesn't look the part. He doesn't look like a great conquering Caesar, a general, a mighty Julius, coming into the city where um, he, he's coming in great military strength. No, Jesus isn't driving a war chariot. He's mounted on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. He has an army but his army is made up of fishermen, a couple of tax collectors, various social castoffs, outsiders, children are part of this group. And when he's received into the city, when he's carried along by the rejoicing and the shouts of the people, he demonstrates his regal authority in the city, not by going up to Herod's palace and, and kicking him out. There were been many people who would have supported that and thought that was a great idea, many people in Israel, not by picking a fight with the closest Roman centurion, all of these zealots would have loved that. That would have been the best thing ever as far as they're concerned, but he didn't do that. He goes to the place that nobody expects him to go. He goes to the temple. Why does he go to the temple? Because he recognizes that is the arena of conflict that Israel uh, needs to have correct. That is where the war is. That's the principal arena of conflict in Jerusalem. And 
Um, as, as, he, as he goes there, he disrupts the selling and the buying and the commerce at the temple. He, in turning over tables, in disrupting the money changing and the selling of sacrificial animals, he makes this dramatic, prophetic demonstration of the final disruption of temple activity that's gonna come in about 40 years. When he knocks all this stuff over, this is a little mini destruction of the temple. This is a, a little taste of what is to come. In doing this, he's saying this building is coming down. This building is unclean. This building has leprosy in its walls to use an image from um, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, and so because this building is leprous, it must be torn down brick by brick. All the timbers and all of the stones must be scattered. And, and that's what's gonna happen to this, uh, this temple. The corruption is so deep here that destruction is the only remedy. And as Jesus turns over the tables and money and doves and things are flying everywhere, he says, but, but you think he's gotta be shouting this so that everybody can hear, so everybody understands why he's doing this. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Thieves is an interesting translation for the word that Jesus uses. It's not an incorrect translation. It's true that the religious establishment is taking advantage of people. There, are, there is thievery going on at the temple. Jesus in Matthew 23 says, you devour widows' houses. There's plenty of stealing going on. But there's a Greek word for somebody who takes your property. Kleptes, a thief. That's where we get the word kleptomania. Um, from that word, but Matthew doesn't use that word for what Jesus says here. He uses a different word, lestes. This word that, that Matthew uses here, that Jesus uses, is uh, the word for brigand or pirate or buccaneer. So it's not just a petty thief, it's a professional. And this became a popular way to describe bands of revolutionaries. Bands of insurrectionists were dens of thieves, dens of lestes. Um, in, in ancient Rome, Cicero described his violent revolutionary opponents as lestes. He, he used the same word that, that Matthew used here. So there were these factions of people throughout the Roman Empire people who lived in areas controlled by, by, by Roman authority, but who obstinately rejected uh, Roman authority. And so they were commonly described, these groups of people were commonly described as gangs of bandits. And so that's the phrase that Jesus is using to describe the activity going on at the temple. The people who hang around the temple are a bunch of insurrectionists. They're a bunch of revolutionaries. The temple is a hangout for agitators and terrorists and zealots. The temple is infested with radical revolutionaries. The temple has also become this nationalistic symbol of their Jewish identity and heritage. And so they all have this assumption that as long as the temple is standing, no matter what else we're doing, no matter what else is going on, no matter what else we're promoting, as long as the temple is standing, everything is right with the world. And it's evidence that we are God's chosen special people. As Jeremiah said, they would repeat, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's the answer to every argument? Are you sitting with the temple of the Lord? As long as the temple of the Lord is standing, everything is fine. Surely God is not going to destroy his house, so we're fine. 
And that's the attitude that Jesus directly confronts when he goes into the city and marches up the steps and into the temple courtyard and disrupts the activity at the temple and rebukes them for what they're doing. And after he does this, the blind and the lame come to him for healing and he heals them. And then there's this great gaggle of children, all shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes are fed up with all of this. They're not at all impressed by this activity. They're highly indignant and they say to Jesus, can't you hear what they're saying? They're saying what? Hosanna, which means save us. It means deliver us. Deliver us who? Son of David. What are they saying about Jesus? They're saying, this is the promised Messiah. This is the one that God promised would sit on the throne of David forever. And so they're saying, save us Messiah, Hosanna to the son of David. And as they're singing this, the priests and the scribes are all upset because nothing about Jesus fits with what they were wanting the Messiah to be, especially since he's coming in opposition to them, right? The Messiah should come and affirm what we're doing. The Messiah should come and sanction what we're doing and bless what we're doing, but he's sitting here opposing us, scribes and priests. He's, he's not enabling us, he's opposing us. And so they're all fed up and they're all angry and they say, Jesus, you gotta shut these kids up. You gotta, you gotta make them be quiet. Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I hear what they're saying. Haven't you heard Psalm 8? Do you know Psalm 8, you guys who profess to know God's word? Of course you know Psalm 8. Jesus sings Psalm 8 to them. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now, anytime... You have a little piece of the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament. You, you go back and you get the whole thing. You, because when Jesus is, is quoting a little piece, he assumes that everybody knows the whole thing. We're going to read the whole verse. In just a few minutes, we're going to read the whole psalm. But the whole verse there that Jesus quotes says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. What Jesus says and what Psalm 8 says is that the praises of children are mighty weapons in God's arsenal. The praises of children silence the enemy. Children are the future. And if children are worshipers, then the future of God's people is promising. The future of God's people is secure. Whoever wins the hearts of the children controls the future. Also, God hears and he responds to the prayers of his children. He will respond and defend and deliver his children. And in this way, the praises and the prayers of children undo, unravel the plots of the wicked. Psalm 127 says that our children are arrows. Our children are offensive weapons of war. So the, so the priests and the scribes, they think what is going to preserve them against their Roman enemies is keeping their Jewish national identity, keeping the temple standing, adhering to their extra biblical oral law traditions, stoking the flames of nationalistic fervor, and, and do all this while ignoring, demeaning, insulting their most effective artillery, these children who are leaping up and down, praising Jesus, and who are recognizing Jesus as Messiah. 
The things they value and think is going to preserve them are not the things that are going to preserve them. And they're ignoring their future. They're ignoring their children. They're telling Jesus to shut them up. They overestimate worldly resources. They overestimate their enemy's resources and they underestimate their own. This is a deep defect in Israel when Jesus comes. They become, over the next 40 years after this event, they become more and more like the Roman beastly empire that they despise so much. And rather than joining the praises of these children and joining the families who trust Jesus, they turn against them, they violently persecute them. The greatest persecution that comes against the church in the book of Acts doesn't come from Rome. They're not, Rome is not sending um, Christians to the arena to fight beasts in the book of Acts. Where is the persecution coming from? The persecution is coming from the temple. The persecution is coming from the Jewish religious establishment. And they are becoming more and more like Rome as they persecute the people who are praising, the children who are praising Jesus. And so God doesn't put up with this. And within a generation, Jerusalem becomes a heap of rubble. These men think they're God's allies. But when they feel threatened, and when they, they, they uh, get, get upset about this, this failure of theology that they witness in these children, they oppose God's children, and now they become the enemies and the avengers who are silenced by the praises of the infants. So consider this profound statement right in the middle of these Palm Sunday events where Jesus quotes and he sings Psalm 8 right in the middle of this. Jesus affirms that children and their worship are an essential component of his warfare against the enemy. You got that, right? Let's just understand that. Children and their worship are essential weapons in God's warfare against the serpent. Why is it then that Christians would ever turn these priceless weapons over to the enemy, to give them to the enemy to craft, to train, to hone, to sharpen, to influence, and then, and then to even turn around and aim them back at us. Why would we ever ask our enemy to watch over our weapons and to maintain them? We would only do that if we think that children weren't that important. We would only do that if we dismissed them and said, no, children are not that powerful, they're not that critical, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. If we underestimated their potency, and yet, that is precisely what happens when Christians hand over their children to a secular, humanist, antichrist state for their education and training and influence. When, when Christians send their children to government schools, they are giving up their most precious resources to people who hate God, who oppose Christ, people who deny his lordship, and who teach them to do the same. Why would they do that? Why would Christians do that? Who can explain it? Well, the, the kind of answers you get are so lame, they're not even, you can't even take them seriously. It's all these answers about convenience and tradition and sentimental ideas about football games and proms. You know, that's worth their soul, right? A, a few football games and a prom, that's worth their soul. Because um, we, we can't replace that in the Christian community at all, can we? we we don't know what a football is. What do we do? How do we dance? I don't know. Can't do it. Who can explain 
the, 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 the decision to hand over our most precious resources to the state to influence. Today, I'm wrapping up a series on what we believe, and these Palm Sunday texts today that we just read are a perfect lead-in to answer what do we believe about Christian education? Why is it so important? The short answer to that question is that God expects our children to trust him and worship him. We provide our children a Christian education because our children belong to Jesus, and they must be trained to worship him in all things and above all things. When our children sing hosannas to the son of David, Jesus hears them, and he delivers and defends his people. So we're not going to turn them over to people who are going to subdue their voices. Uh, we're not going to turn them over to people like the priests and the scribes who say, can't you make these kids be quiet? Can't you stop this worship? Can't you stop this praise? Teach them essentially unbelief. No, we're not going to do that. We make every effort to encourage their praises, to sharpen them and to train them up into mature worship to praise God for all of his works in history, for his whole creation, for the arts, and to acknowledge that Christ is the king of everything. Now, this may be just one of the things we take for granted, and because all of us are engaged in providing our children with a Christian education, we may just start to assume that this is just a, life, a lifestyle we've chosen, that this is just what we do. You know, we may not reflect why we make these sacrifices, uh, reflect on why we do what we do, and we may not even be able to articulate clearly to friends and neighbors and family members who don't get it, who don't know, understand why we're doing what we do. But you see, if, if this is just a lifestyle choice that we're making because we're privileged to do so and we just take it or leave it, if that's all it is, if it's that superficial, then it's probable that our children are not going to carry this on to the next generation um, and to the next. Um, and... and, and and if it's, if it's just a lifestyle choice to train our children uh, it, with a Christian education, then, then when things become more difficult, if the sacrifices required of us become greater, then we may just think, well, I'm not going to fight for a lifestyle choice. I'm not going to fight for a preference. I don't care. We just, you know, send them wherever for training. We have to remind ourselves of why we take this so seriously. We have to re rehearse and go over and over this. And so let me briefly define what I mean by a Christian education. I mean a, an education that is thoroughly built on the foundation that Christ is the king of all things. Christ is the king of math, and he's the king of science, and he's the king of literature, and he's the king of music, and he's the king of all language. He is the beginning and the end of all things, and all things exist to serve him. Now, this is in opposition to an education that puts man at the center of all things, or an education that puts his intellect at the center of all things, or the head of all things, or an education that puts the state and whatever it values today, which may be something from what it, uh, different from what it valued last week, and it may be different from what it valued five years ago, and it's going to be different tomorrow as well. It puts the values of the state at the head of all things. Uh, Christian education puts Christ as the head of all things. There are several different methods that we employ in the pursuit of a Christian education. A lot of different ways to get there. We have homeschools and co-ops and online classes and Christian schools and 
I'm not gonna advocate for any one of these over the other. These are all excellent methods, uh, and, and uh, none of them are a one-size-fits-all solution. They all have their advantages, they all have their challenges. My family has used every single one of these over the years at different stages and seasons of life, and we've never committed to using just one all the way through with the whole family. Every year since 2005, when my daughter uh, was a kindergartner, every year since 2005, we've had the same conversation, what are we doing this year with this kid? It's, it, every year we have that conversation. So, um, and we've had to uh, adjust and change as the needs of the child have changed and, and the opportunities have changed. Uh, we've we've uh, used different methods. So I'm not gonna make an argument for any one method, but I will defend the principle that Christian children deserve a Christian education, that God expects us to give them a Christian education. So why do we take this so seriously? Why do we take Christian education so seriously as a congregation, even as our denomination, and why do we reject government education, public education, outright? I'm gonna give you three reasons um, as briskly as I can. Number one, why do we, why do we take this so seriously? Because, because God has entrusted the training of children to their faithful parents and not to the state. In many places in the Bible, there are several places, and we can study them together, and we have in the past. The Bible lists the duties of the civil magistrate. The, the Bible, God defines the powers of the state, the authority given to the state, the honor due the civil magistrate. In all of these places, never one time does God's word say it is the duty of the state to train children. God has not given that authority to the state. It is not in their jurisdiction. What does the state do? The state defends the innocent. The, the state protects the innocent and it punishes the wicked. And it's given the sword to do that. Uh, but it is to parents that the encouragement is given to train up a child in the way he should go. In Deuteronomy, right after Moses reads out the law to that generation, that they were about to enter the promised land, after reading the law, Moses exhorts the people to take responsibility for training their children in everything that God requires. And you know this passage, but I'm gonna read it out loud again so we can reflect on it. Here's what, <clears throat> here's what God requires. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. So when you look at yourself, you look at yourself through what God says you are, how God has created you. That's how you look at yourself. Bind them as a frontlet, between your eyes, as a jewel, like a piece of jewelry, that, that an ornament that hangs between your eyes, so that wherever you look, you're looking through God's word about what he says about the world. That's what is the interpretation for reality, what God has said. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when you leave the house and when you come back home, you're reflecting on what God says about where you're going and what you do when you get back home. Everything you do, coming and going, waking or sleeping, eating or drinking, playing or working, is defined by what God requires. This is a responsibility that God gives parents to the children in their house to make sure that they know what God's commands are and that they don't stop talking about it, that they keep talking about it. You talk about God's word and you talk about God's world all throughout the day. 
Christian education starts on day one of your child's life. When they're born and you hold them on your chest and you, uh, you look at their little ears and you, you know, count their little toes, school's in session. Uh, this is day one. They are enrolled in school. Now you're always getting help with this throughout their lives. You're always giving them books written by other people. There's nothing wrong with that. You give them other people to help tutor them in this or that subject or, or get a whole team of people at the Christian school to help you in your job to teach them. But this is not ever a responsibility that you are transferring to someone else uh, as a parent. You are accountable. And you may respond to that and say, well, what Moses is talking about there, he's talking about God's law. He's talking about the religious stuff. Talk about the religious stuff in your house. And that's, that's fine. They can learn the religious stuff at home. They can learn the religious stuff on Sunday morning. But they need to go to a secular school to learn about how the world works. They need to go to a secular school to learn about real life and, you know, the other things. Well, no, that's, that's not it. All of, of education is religious. That's the second point uh, that I'm going to make. All education is religious. Jesus quotes Psalm 8. And if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to jump back there. I'm going to read the whole Psalm. and I'm going to make a few points out of Psalm 8. Uh, psalm 8, which Jesus quotes to the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and priests who are telling him to shut up these children. Jesus, in commending the praise of these babies, quotes a psalm which brings into the conversation all of the world, all of creation into this conversation. Um, Psalm 8 begins with this praise. O Yahweh, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. And he repeats that very same thing at the, at the end in verse 9. So he closes with, the, with that refrain. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And he looks up at the sky. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, he looks at himself. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And he thinks about the spiritual world. He says, for you've made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. And he looks down below his feet at the world beneath his feet. He says, you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. And he repeats, praise to God, O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. He begins in the Psalm, David begins with the majesty and excellence and the glory of God. And then we learn and that this transcendent God who is enthroned above the heavens is pleased to show his strength through babies to children to work out his purposes and to stop the mouths of the wicked through nursing infants. He is so great and mighty that he's able to use something so small and weak and helpless as an infant for his purpose. And this wonder, this glory of this contrast sets the psalmist off to think about the, the heavens above his head. He, he ponders the heavens, the moon and the stars, all the works of God which he observes above him. And what, what does this take into account? Astronomy, physics, cosmology, mathematics. And then he looks at himself and he asks that great question, what is man? <laughs> to answer that question, what is man? 
You study philosophy and biology and anthropology and sociology and history and archaeology and arts and literature, poetry and song, and of course, above all these, theology, because he seeks to understand his relationship to the spiritual world, being placed a little lower than the angels and yet crowned with glory and honor. So after looking up at the heavens and looking to himself, looking at himself, then he looks down at the earth and he sees all the things God has put under his dominion. He says sheep and oxen, wild animals, birds, fish. He studies geology and chemistry and oceanography and agriculture and botany. There's no field of study in the entire universe in which God is irrelevant. Everything belongs to him. And it's our duty as parents to train up our children in a way that they join with the psalmist as he repeats that refrain at the end of the psalm, oh Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Did you hear that part? All the earth. His name is excellent in algebra. His name is excellent in zoology. His name is excellent in mechanical engineering. His name is excellent in writing code and in ballet and in choir. His name is excellent in medieval literature studies. His name is excellent in all the earth. The state and its schools are not going to assist you in training your children to believe like that, to learn like that, or to live like that. They're gonna teach your children the opposite of all of this. They're teaching a different religion. Jesus is irrelevant to all these subjects as far as the state is concerned. Keep your Christian faith to yourself. Christianity is for Sunday morning, it's not for science class. Jesus is for the church, not for social studies. And it's impossible for us to even begin talking about government education without acknowledging the present condition of government education and the sexual perversion the hatred for Western civilization, the contempt for Christendom, the, the Marxism, the radical environmentalism, all of this is tirelessly, shamelessly promoted. And, and, and these are all, this is a very religious education that these kids are getting. This is a, these are religious dogmas that you must not deviate from or you're a heretic. And so government schools are just leftist indoctrination camps. That's what they've become and it's, it's to the point where it's, it's difficult for any of us to have any patience or sympathy for Christians who still have their kids in these schools. When, when Christians march into school board meetings and they complain about the gay books in the library or the trans flags in the classrooms and they want us to get all up in arms with them and, and we say to them, why is your child still there? You see what's going on and you still put them on the bus? You see what's going on? You still drop them off at that school? I'm sorry, I don't sympathize with you. I'll just speak for myself. Thus I speak, not the Lord. I don't sympathize with you. Take them out. Make the sacrifices. I don't know, sell a boat. Go on two or three, four fewer vacations a year. Learn to live on one salary. Make an adjustment, move somewhere. I know not everybody who uses public schools is extraordinarily wealthy. If there's a single mom who's struggling to make a living and to take care of kids, come to the church. We will help you rescue those children. We will do something. We'll work it out. We'll find a solution. 
We will help you get them out. Do whatever it takes to get your kid out of the public schools. Get them out of the government schools. We've all done it. We've all done it. And we know that there are solutions. We also know that there are great sacrifices. We've paid tuition. Um, we, we've, we've spent hours uh, teaching and, and tutoring our children. That was hours that we could have been doing other things. And we've invested this in our children because it matters so much. And so it's really hard to sympathize with the complaints of Christian parents who are just blindly still going along with this, given how disgusting the schools have, begotten, have gotten. Come on, it's past time. It's way past. It was, it was past time 10 years ago. It was past time 20 years ago. It's time. Let's, let's just rewind the tape. Let's just rewind the tape about 40 years ago. How far do you want to go back? 50 years ago. Think back when sweet little Southern Baptist Sunday school teachers were teaching the classes and staffing the schools. Was it okay back then? Was it all good back then? No, it wasn't. It wasn't okay back then because it has never been in their God-given jurisdiction to teach our children as a state. In addition to that, the government schools have always existed to create faithful disciples of the state. They have always existed to serve the ends and the goals of the nation. You've heard me say this often. It, the, my protest, my primary protest, protest against the, the public schools is not just the bad information. It's not just they're getting bad data, which they are, Bad data, useless data, corrupt data, perverse data. It's all, it's all bad information. But the greater problem is the bad formation. And this has been bad forever. It's the liturgy of the public school that turns you into a worshiper of everything but Jesus. Secular schools have never existed in order to promote the worship and obedience required by Jesus. State schools have never existed to create worshipers of King Jesus. Never. They have always been built on the false premise that you can have this neutral space and learn neutral things without giving any attention to what God says. They've always promoted this myth of neutrality. Public schools are seminaries of materialistic religion. And that brings me to number three, that nothing is neutral. We work to give our kids Christian educations. We sacrifice and we labor because we understand that our kids' heads and their hearts are integrated. We cannot teach their heads Monday through Friday that they're a cosmic mistake, that they're descendants of prehistoric protozoa, that they're cousins of apes, and then with their hearts expect them to sing Psalm 8 on Sunday that man is a special creation of God crowned with glory and honor. You can't do that without giving them a serious case of epistemological whiplash. They're going to come to believe one or the other is not true. Which one do you think it's going to be? Which one do you think they're going to arrive at is not true? Between the 15,000 hours of classroom instruction between kindergarten and senior year, 15,000 hours, and on the other side of the ledger, the one hour on Sunday that you decide to come to church when nothing else is going on. You don't have a tournament or you don't have you know, company in town or you're not at the beach. That one hour on Sunday. Compared to the 15,000 hours 
of classroom instruction, uh, which is going to win the hearts of your children? Which is going to have the greater influence? What is going to shape them? Their heads and their hearts are integrated so that whatever you're teaching their minds is influencing how they live. And not only that, but all subjects are integrated. Moderns like to pretend like, like there's this abstract thing called math that's not connected to anything else, and there's this other silo of knowledge called science, and then there's literature, and then there's history, and none of it's connected to anything else. But an explicitly Christian education leads a person to understand, it leads a student to understand that all of life is integrated because all good things come from one source. All wisdom has one fountain. All truth comes from one God. And understanding how all of this fits together leads us to a full and rich and beautiful and harmonious life, an ability to learn about and love all the good things that God has given man to enjoy. The modern industrial state wants these little automatons. Just do this one little menial task. Do it over and over and over. Don't think about what it means. Don't think about what you're doing. Don't think about why you're doing it. Don't think about what this is doing to you. Don't think about how it's shaping you. Just do this over and over and over and do your eight hours so that you can go home and go back to watching your TikToks and, and play your video games and you can get up the next morning and do it all again. A Christian education is not aimed at producing brainless wage slaves. We're aiming at producing men and women created in the image of God who are full of imagination and creativity and who are not good at just one thing, but explore all things. And they can never get enough. They can never stop tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Their musical training informs and shapes their ability to write code. Their literary studies gives them creativity and imagination to be better surgeons and to be better lawyers and carpenters. Because they can read an ancient Greek text, they can fly through a technical manual on how to repair an AC unit. I mean, that's nothing. No technical man, uh, manual is anything once you've read Herodotus. I mean, if you've plowed through that, you can read anything, right? I'm barely scratching the surface. But there have been whole libraries of books written on the importance of a Christian education. But I'll leave you this last thought. Christians seem to be the only ones unaware of the massive firepower they have in their houses with their children. Leftists and Marxists know about the heavy artillery you have in your car seats, the heavy artillery that you carry around in your, uh, your minivans, your, uh, your homeschool attack vehicles, your tactical uh, uh, homeschool vehicles or Christian school vehicles. They know, leftists know about the heavy artillery that you have and they're not worried and they're not scared because they're childless because they know they can disciple your kids and they'll end up with them eventually. They know that, or so they assume, because from the beginning, Satan has waged warfare and has worked to disarm the kingdom of God, not by a frontal attack on the man. The, the serpent doesn't go up to Adam, he comes around the side. He attacks the woman and her offspring. He attacks the woman and her seed because if he can attack her and if he can win, he's got the future. And, and so that's why Pharaoh has the babies drowned. That's why Herod attacks the little children. You, you get rid of the kids, you get rid of the future. We control the future now. Satan is not productive. He and his kingdom are infertile. They're not fruitful. They're not creative. 
They can only imitate and disrupt and destroy. They can lie. They can create fear and steal. Sadly, we saw this play out tragically again last week in that horrible tragedy in Nashville. Satan always goes after the soft targets. Satan always attacks the offspring. He's after the children. And then this wicked regime that we're living under, all the mindless, soulless minions rush to defend the monster that they've created, and they, and they would gladly, they would gladly sacrifice a million more children to keep their charade going. They'd be happy to do it. It's, it's not anything for them. I mean, they're, the, the, the transsexual, homosexual agenda that they are deliberately pushing on kids is not about kids being happy. It's not about kids being who they want to be. It's all about making children fruitless and warped and hopeless and servile. It has nothing to do with their happiness. It's about a war on children. And one of the greatest strikes that you can make against the gates of hell, the, one of the greatest things that you'll ever accomplish in your life is to choke off the supply chain of Christian kids going over to the kingdom of darkness and, in, and, and, in, and instead diligently training their little voices to sing hosannas to the son of David, which silences the enemy. You think that's not a big deal? You think this is just a lifestyle choice that we're making? You know, we, we eat different, we dress different, we just school different, but it's all just, you know, we're just kind of the, 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 the hippie contingent of the Christian world or whatever. And we're just trying to be alternative. We're just trying to be weird with our schooling. No, that's not it at all. That's, not, that's not, no part of it at all. We are talking about the future of the world. We're talking about the future of the kingdom of God. What we're doing right now, how seriously we take training our children in this godless, pagan, perverted society, what we're doing is going to have ripple effects for all of human history. So moms and dads, keep up the good work. Keep plowing, keep doing what you're doing, keep making the sacrifices, keep encouraging those little voices to sing Hosanna to the son of David. That is what closes the mouth of the avenger and the enemy and the accuser. Thank you for the sacrifices that you are making. Don't grow weary, don't stop, let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you for uh, this freedom that we have presently to to pursue a Christian education for our children with very little turbulence, with very little sacrifice, with, with, with uh, much peace. Now, Father, steal us and strengthen us and give us confidence in this time of ease in case we ever have to defend uh, this, this duty that you have given us to do. And so, Father, don't let us grow lax. Uh, don't let us grow complacent, but to continue to fight and to continue to gain ground uh, with these weapons that you have given us uh, that, that are potent and effective. Strengthen our kids, deliver them from temptation, and uh, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.